Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We're going to be in the uh, book of Malachi here uh, this morning, and we're almost really close to uh, wrapping this book up here. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Malachi chapter number three, and uh, then next week we'll finish the, the book out uh, through Malachi chapter four. One, uh, one thing, uh, if you've been kind of following along here as we've been looking through this book, one thing that you've been seeing as a constant theme over and over and over is the fact that uh, God's people had uh, really become very complacent. They had become um, apathetic in their, uh, in their life, their spiritual life. And uh, the spiritual condition of the people... Uh, it showed. It, it showed their spiritual condition and, and what they were doing. Uh, you know, Malachi has been bringing these charges. Uh, you know, uh, God has been speaking through Malachi, bringing these charges to the people about their spiritual condition. Uh, he's addressed priests and people alike uh, for their complacency, for their apathy, dealing with uh, how they've been making these profane offerings to the fact of them uh, bringing these charges to God, saying, God, you don't really love us anymore, all this kind of stuff. Uh, He dealt with their infidelity, uh, dealt with all of the way that they were worshiping. And um, it it really was a a really, really bad problem uh, for the people of God here. And, you know, in, in all of this, if you were to ask them, and this, this is what's so amazing about this, if you were to ask the people and say, how is your relationship with God? Their response would be, oh, it's fine. That's how blind they were to their spiritual apathy and their complacency towards God. And I think this is something that the church today struggles with We have become spiritually apathetic and complacent in our relationship with God. And we ask the question, how is our relationship with God, church? And we would probably say, oh, it's fine. It's fine. Everything's great. I mean, did you catch our worship service last week? We shot a guy out of a cannon. Wasn't that amazing? How is our worship before the Lord? See, we become complacent. We've become uh, very apathetic in our relationship with the Lord. And so Malachi has been uh, bringing these assaults to the people and trying to wake them up spiritually, wake up out of your sleep uh, to what you've been doing and how you've been acting You know, it's interesting, they had just returned from exile probably less than 100 years ago. If you remember, they were taken into captivity there in Babylon. There they spent 70 years uh, in Babylon under captivity. God finally brought them out of captivity. It's been about 100 years, uh, probably about 25 years prior to uh, Malachi's writing all of this, Um, 
the people had uh, repented. They, 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 they rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt the temple. They said, hey, we're going to do what's right. And then spiritual apathy had settled back in to their life. Uh, they had lost their hope in God. They were now living external, ritualistic type of religious lives. It was all only outward show. There was really no inward desire or inward change of things. You know, perhaps you found yourself in the same situation before as well. Spiritual apathy happens so gradually and oftentimes... We are blind to it as well, just as you'll see here uh, in our text, that it creeps up on us so easily that we become so blind, we don't even realize how far we've drifted away from God. And so to these apathetic people here and to us, Malachi's message, even though it's over 2,400 years old, it's still relevant to us today. And uh, Malachi's message is a message of hope. And so today we're going to look at uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. And in these verses, God is going to spell it out for them and describe for them exactly why they are spiritually apathetic. And he's going to offer them three tests of how he knows that they're spiritually apathetic. And so this is what I want you to take away with you this morning. Spiritual apathy can affect all of us, but God offers hope by returning to him. Spiritual apathy can affect all of us, but God offers hope by simply returning to him. So before we look at these three tests, we've got to ask a very important question. Here's the question. What hope does God offer to the spiritually apathetic? We need to ask this question because I think oftentimes in our relationship with God, what ends up happening is as we drift away from God, we start looking around at our lives and we say, what's the point? What's the point of even going back to God? Look how far I've drifted away. There's really no hope for me. Look how far I've been removed from God. I mean, look at my life. It's in shambles. It's a mess. And what hope is there? But isn't it interesting? I love this, that God begins his message to his people, not with the thing of like, this is what you've done. This is what you've done. This is what you've done. But he begins with a message of hope. And he says, here's the hope. All you have to do is simply return back to me and find the hope that you need. And then he offers the the test of how he knows that they become spiritually apathetic. So check out verses 6 through 7 here. And I want you to see that the hope that God offers here is a fixed point of reference. For those of you that have done any type of construction, you have to know how important it is to have a fixed point of reference. If your measurements are always changing, your building is going to come out looking crooked. There has to be a fixed point of reference. And God says, I am that fixed point of reference. And you have to return back to me, is what he says. So that's what he says here. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, 
are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Malachi reminds those who are going through the motions that God's delayed judgment is the result of his character and promises. Because notice what he says here. I, the Lord, do not change. Who changed? Certainly not God. Who drifted away? Certainly not God. The people changed. The people drifted away. And God's simply reminding him, he says, listen, I do not change. You can rest assured that I will always keep my promises because I do not change. And so that fixed point of hope should be on God himself. That's where we find our hope from, is from God. I want to show you some more of this promise here because he reminds them of this, this covenant promise. Notice the phrases he uses here. He uses the word children or sons of Jacob, and it's to remind them of his covenant promise. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. I mean, if you've been keeping up with the Bible reading that we've been working through, right, there's been this covenant that God has made with his people, and he says, hey, I'm going to promise to do this. The God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, right? Like there's this covenant promise that he's keeping with them. I want you to look a little bit more at this. Turn your Bibles over to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 this is the Old Testament, so just keep going back a few chapters over, a um, few books over. You come to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. And I want you to notice here, verses 35 through 37, God is going to tell us a little bit more about his covenant promise. Now, it's interesting here in Jeremiah, this is right before Babylon comes in. And they destroy the city. They take the people captive, okay? And God reminds them of his promise towards his people. Look what he says here, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 35 to 37. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that, it, so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. God does everything right? Verse 36, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. And so God is basically telling them, says, listen, the sun, the order, the stars, everything that's in, in our uh, uh, system here that you see, all of the, the, the planets, all of that stuff, it's in order. Everything is there. He says, if it were to happen that all this stuff were just to fall apart, guess what? Then I would cast off the children of Israel. So what is he reminding them? He's reminding them of his faithfulness. He's saying, I will not forsake my people destruction's coming to them. And God's saying, listen, even though there's destruction coming, I am not going to cast you off. I'm going to remain faithful to you. 
And he's constantly reminds them of this faithfulness. And so here in Malachi, he's doing the exact same thing. And he's saying, listen, I am the God that does not change. I keep my promises. It's very simple. All you have to do is simply return back to me for hope. Later on here in Jeremiah, you find that Jeremiah is in bondage and Jerusalem is about to be destroyed and Judah is going to be hauled off into exile there in Babylon. And it's yet the whole chapter, if you read it, I encourage you to read it, the whole chapter is about God's unchanging, faithful character towards his people. And so when God promises something, it will come to pass every single time. And he says, I do not change. My covenant with you is going to remain the same. I do not change, says the Lord. He says, all you got to do is simply return back to me. In Numbers chapter 23, verses 19, and 1 Samuel 15, 29, it tells us that God does not lie or change his mind. It says, I do not change, so you are not destroyed. And so rather than destroy, in his grace, God does what? He offers hope which is totally amazing. See, we don't deserve grace. Think about our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We deserve to be cast off into hell forever and ever and ever. But what does God do? He extends his grace through his son, Jesus. Jesus paid the debt. Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sin. We don't deserve that. But that's exactly the, the kind of God that we serve. He offers us hope. And so he does not change. And so this is amazing truth and amazing hope to these apathetic people here. God offers this incredible hope. And the hope is return to me and I will return back to you. The priests, the people were guilty of hypocrisy, infidelity, compromise, divorce without cause, false worship, and arrogant pride. And what does the Lord simply do? He pleads with them, repent, turn back to me, come back to me. What does it mean to repent? That word repent is, is used widely throughout, uh, throughout scripture. It simply means to change your mind. Change your mind of how you're living. Change your mind and how you're thinking. Change your mind on how you view your sin. Change your mind and your relationship to God. Change your mind. Turn from going this way to going this way. And God says it's so simple. If you want hope, he says all you have to do is to change your mind, turn, repent, and come back to me. Isn't it interesting that as we've been looking at this dialogue between God and God's people, that the people had seemed to lose their closeness with God? Now remember, if you, if you were to ask them and say, how is your relationship with God? Oh, it's fine. Everything's good. But in reality, it wasn't. They had lost that closeness. They had lost that nearness, that intimacy with God. They still went through the motions. They still called themselves his people. They didn't feel close to him. And here God is offering relational intimacy with them again. Return to me and I will return back to you. Repent of your sin and apathy. and You will find me close and attentive. 
This is the continual plea of God from Israel's captivity to their return. It was always, return to me, return to me, return to me, repent, return to me, return to me. We see it over and over all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Joel chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not re- who, who will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Jeremiah chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 says, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree. And that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. For I am your master. I will take you from one city and two from a family. And I will bring to you Zion. Zechariah 1.3 Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But this is not just an offer here to Jews 2,400 years ago. James chapter 4.8 says this to us. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, God is still saying, return to me. Come out of your spiritual apathy. Come out of your spiritual complacency and come back to me. Quit following all this other stuff and return back to me. You want the closeness? You want the nearness? You want the very presence of God in your life? You have to repent and you have to return back to the Lord is what Malachi is saying and is what our Lord says to us as well. He promises that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. We have to remember that the promises of God in Scripture are our greatest hope. We have nothing else, people. If you are looking for hope in anything else other than God and in his word, you will not find it. It will be fleeting. It does not last. And the character of God undergirds all of his promises. Why? Because he says, I do not change. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And so he's promised this. This is what's really interesting. Check out verse number seven here. He tells them to return to me and I'll return to you. And I want you to show you something. This is the problem that the people were facing and even that we face is that when we are spiritually apathetic, we are usually blinded to God's promises and to his hope. Now take notice of this and don't miss this. This is so important here. Verse 7, he says, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But notice what they say. But you say, how shall we return? Now you've got to grasp this. This was not a question of, 
well, what, what are we supposed to do here? They were so spiritually blind and apathetic that they actually thought that they had not left God at all. Their question was more of a question of return to you? What, 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 what are you talking about? What, we, we haven't left. I mean, have you been taking notice of our worship? I mean, we've been here every single week. Have you been noticing how loud we've been singing in the worship services? Have you been taking note of our offering? I mean, we've been offering our sacrifices. What do you mean return to you? This is how far they've drifted away from God. They hadn't even realized that they had drifted away from the Lord. How shall we return back to you? This is not a question that wants an answer. A genuine question to, be, to ask would be, how do I return? What do I need to do? I'm broken. I'm lost. I needed help. That was not their question. Their question was, return? What, 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 do, you, what do you mean return? We never left. What do you mean by that? And they're blind to their spiritual apathy. How shall we return? Why do you think we need to do that? We've been doing what you've asked. They feel like they've been doing good. They are blind. Could you be that apathetic? Some of you might be like this. You assume everything is good. You have no knowledge of any issues. You don't have the joy and zeal that some others have. But you are obeying him and so all must be well. Some of you might have a nagging feeling in your heart that all is not well. A few of you already know that what everyone else sees is just a sham of reality. God's response in this passage is for us. It's for you. They had drifted away from God, and yet they had not realized how far they had drifted. And Malachi is going to show them now three tests of how he knows that they have grown spiritually apathetic. Are you ready for the test? Kind of feel like a teacher. You ready? Take out a half sheet of paper, number from 1 to 10. You ready for the test? This is going to be hard, okay? But truth is needed. Truth is needed if we really want to return back to the Lord. Truth is needed. Here it is, okay? Here's the first test. Number one. You are selfish with money. I ran across this picture. I thought it was kind of funny. Will a man rob God? Somebody put this on a church bulletin board, it looks like. And then they got a non-tithers board here, okay? I thought that was pretty crazy. <laughs> are you selfish with money? Now, if you, if, if, you, if you are approaching the book of Malachi and you're looking at this whole thing with tithing and you're like, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. We need to talk about money. You have a profound misunderstanding of what Malachi is trying to say here, okay? Because the issue is not about money. The issue is about their spiritual apathy, okay? And I'll show you that here in just a minute, okay? 
Notice what it says here. Here in Malachi, God charges Israel with robbing him. They've been stealing from him. It's really a simple case of embezzlement. Uh, back in 2008, uh, maybe if you remember this, Bernie Madoff, who was a uh, big stock guy, okay? Uh, in 2008, there was the largest Ponzi scheme exposed. Ber Bernie Madoff uh, made off with really $64.8 billion of people's money. Uh, and really, he, he stole it from them. He embezzled it. Um, to date, it is the largest investment scandal ever. And yet here, God says, through Malachi, he says, you have been robbing me. Now, this word robbing was used in a, in a way to describe one who, who would plunder. It's like uh, Genghis Khan who would come into a, to a village and he would conquer the people and then he would plunder all of the, the things that they had, took it all. Then he'd bring in uh, some, uh, some Chinese men and to keep account of it. And they would, they would extract all of the money. They would, they would plunder it. They would take it all. And so God here says, he says, you are robbing me. He robbed them. And that's the type of action that's being described here. They deny it, of course. They say, well, what do you mean? I mean, look what he says, right? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? They're denying it. We haven't robbed you. What are you talking about? How have we robbed you? And his answer is that there is through their what? Through their tithes and offerings were subpar. Their worship of him was weak. Their dependence on his provision was lousy. What should really capture your attention here is at the beginning of verse 10. Notice what he says here. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The word tithe means 10 or 10%. Okay? So they were supposed to be giving a tenth of everything that they owned. The issue is not that they were not giving. Okay? This is what a lot of people like to look at this. They say, oh, yeah, you're going to talk about tithing. You're robbing God of the tithe. The issue was not the fact that they weren't giving. They were giving. But the issue was they were not giving the full tenth percent. They were giving less than what had been commanded. Chapter 1 of Malachi is full of indictments. Over them, giving God the leftovers, they offered sick, lame, blind animals for sacrifices. When they had to give money, they gave less of what the law required. And you would think that plundering here meant that they were taking money out of the temple. But in God's view, it's just as bad. He says, you are robbing me, you are plundering me. And as a whole, what this means is that Israel's action is far more evil than what we think. I don't think of stingy giving as an assault against God, but he certainly does. He really does. So we should be gravely concerned here because a lack of giving is symptomatic of a greater spiritual issue. You know, of, of all the times that I've done counseling through the years here, I've counseled people with, through their marriages. I've counseled people with homosexual uh, desires. I've counseled people with pornography issues. Counseled people with relationship issues. You know the one thing I've never counseled people about? Materialism and greed. For some reason, 
materialism and greed is one of those undetectable things in our lives. We don't see it. And neither did the people of Malachi's life either. And so if you're selfish with your money, basically what God is saying here, there is a spiritual issue, and I can safely say that you are blind to it as well. Do you know that all the times that that we see throughout the Bible that money is always tied to some spiritual thing? Even Jesus talked about that. And so what we do with our money really shows where our spiritual lives are in a case. And so this is the issue that God uses in Malachi to reveal this spiritual blindness. And so they're giving, but they weren't giving the full tithe. Partial obedience is still disobedience, always. These people had just come back from the, uh, from the exile. I mean, I'm sure that there was some difficulties going on. I mean, they were having a hard time in the land. Uh, there were some, some things that were happening, and I'm sure they were trying to get things put under their feet. And chances are, they're probably like, hey, you know what? I got other needs that need to be met. And so they were only giving partial of the tie. They were trying to reestablish themselves. You know, I'm sure you've been there as well. You get a pay cut or your car breaks, your tax bill is huge, and so your generosity towards the church or missions or compassion work declines. It happens. Maybe it happened when you got your first job. You looked at the little paycheck and you thought about your bills and you got in the habit of just slipping God a 20, right? This is it. I think this is good. And that is what's happened here. But I want you to look here at verses 10 through 12, okay? Notice what it says here. After this accusation, okay, verses 10 through 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the small field, not to... To fail, bear, uh, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And so he has this accusation, but he responds with this incentive, and he says, listen, you put me to the test, and, and, and you'll see, you'll see the kind of blessings that will come from this. Now, this is not a, hey, you got to sow your seed money, and then God's going to do something amazing, right? All that false uh, teaching garbage that's on, the, on the, uh, the shows and things like that. This is not what God is saying, and this is not what I'm saying. Okay? God is trying to tell them that, listen, you've been disobedient to me in this area. You become spiritual apathetic in this, and I'll show you that I know that you're spiritually apathetic because of how you give, is what he's saying. And so to those who are apathetic about giving, God says, repent and trust me, obey me, and it'll be fine. In fact, it'll be better than now. It's really an amazing promise of God. So what does this mean for us? We don't live in the land. We're not not here. This promise is not to us. Can I say something that might surprise you? We're not commanded to tithe. Look it up. Go throughout the New Testament. Do you find anywhere in Scripture that it says, you must tithe? It's not there. 
So people that use this scripture and say, you need to be given to God. You need to be given your 10%. If you're not giving, we're going to put your name on the bulletin board. Wrong. Eh. Time out. What does God command us to do? We need to obey. And how are we going to obey? We're going to give, and we're going to give graciously. He doesn't tell us how much to give. It's interesting. The New Testament teaches giving, and it's not an exact certain amount. So what are we to do with our money? I believe as believers, we are granted freedom in how much money we give away. And really, it's, we, we got to be clear about this, that all of it is God's money anyways, right? So God gives us the money to steward it, and then he wants us to give it in such a way that would reflect that. And so we need to be gracious with it. And so we have freedom in the way that we manage it. Let me give you an example of freedom. I am free to kiss my wife and to play with my daughter. I'm free to do that. And if you're married and have children, you're free to do that as well. Nowhere are we commanded to say you must kiss your wife X amount of times per day, per week, and play with your children X amount of minutes per day, per week. But because we are free, we are free to kiss our wives and play with our children however many times we want to. And so make the application here with, our, with, with the money that God entrusts us with. God graciously gives us things, and he says, you're free to do what you want with it. But he says, as, as a believer in Christ, because you have been set free through the power of the gospel, he says, you ought to be reflecting that, and you ought to be giving and give generously. Be a cheerful giver is what God says. So there's really no set amount of what you're supposed to give. 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians uh, chapter number 9 really teach us that we are free to give proportional to our income. And so if you're not giving in some proportion to your income, then you're not obeying a New Testament command to Christians. Philippians chapter 4.19 says, God will, rich, will richly supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17-19, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and be generous and, will, and willing to share. In this same way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11, Paul taught, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so each one must give as he has declared in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Proverbs eleven twenty four through 25 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. 
Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. And so the problem is not that you don't have enough money to give. The problem is that you've been putting it in the wrong investments. And where we place our money really shows what we worship. Wherever that money, remember what Jesus said? He says you cannot serve God and money. He says you'll either love the one or hate the other. And so where that money is going really shows what we care about and what we worship. And God says this is the test if we become spiritually apathetic and it reveals in our giving. And so I encourage you, if you're not giving on a regular basis, I encourage you to do so. Don't be stingy with your money, right? Don't do that. That's not good. And if you are giving, I'm so thankful for that. We are thankful for that. Okay? And that's a good thing. It's a blessing. And so it's important where, where you put your money. Here's the second thing. Okay? I'm going to wrap this up really quickly. Secondly, you've lost sight of eternity. Okay? God again accuses them that they contradict him. Okay? He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? How have they spoken against them? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? Okay, what they're saying here is they're not asking, but they're declaring again. They're declaring their innocence. They're saying, we haven't done anything wrong. And God says, no, 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 you have. And this is how you've done it because you say these things. You say, what is the profit of our keeping his charge? It's become vain to, de- to serve God. And so God declares that he's heard them to say to one another. He says, I've heard you say this. One thing we got to remember is the conversations that we have when we think nobody else is listening, nobody knows what's going on, guess who's listening? God is. He knows it all. And when he returns, guess what? Everything that will be spoken in secret will be declared on the housetops. So just watch what you say behind closed doors, okay? It's real important to remember that. And so God says, I know what you've been saying. You have been saying it's vain to serve God and it profits me nothing. There's no profit. There's no eternity. Uh, there's no, no reward in all of this. They're saying, I'm obeying, but I don't see any benefit. I'm not getting anything out of this. It's pointless to obey God. My life is no different than my godless neighbor over here. Look what they're doing. They're doing all this stuff, and they're getting away with it. Why am I over here uh, worshiping and serving and doing all this stuff? I mean, why am I taking out all the time and doing all this stuff? It seems like it's, it's worthless. Why do all this stuff? It's not profiting me anything. The spiritually apathetic expect immediate reward. They believe that God must bless and affirm every effort they make. And if he doesn't, then the righteousness doesn't matter. This, again, is one of the dangers of the false teaching that you hear, all that stuff. Uh, Like Joel Osteen, he came out with a book a while back ago. Uh, Live your best life now. It's always about now, here and now, right? It's never for eternity, okay? Uh, we we got we to get that through our, through our minds that when we grow spiritually apathetic, we think that it's only for here and now. How we live our life, it's only for here and now. We've lose sight of eternity. And if you remember, when Jesus comes back, guess what? There is going to be rewards. This is all future stuff, right? We got to keep that perspective 
in mind. And so those that are apathetic in their spiritual life are always looking for the sum reward here and now. And so they say, it doesn't matter what we're doing. It's no, it, there, there's nothing uh, important about this. And all of these things are, are really rooted in immediate reward. If your heart is regularly nagging you to ask, why am I doing this again? Spiritual apathy has probably settled in your life and in your heart. If you start thinking that there's no point to this, right? Spiritual apathy is probably, probably in your life because your concern is really only for the here and now. And you look at all of life through that and you do whatever it takes to get ahead. And so if this is you, Malachi is speaking to you and he's calling you to wake up. The Lord is pleading with you to return to him. You know, we, we live in a, in a world of instant digital age, instant gratification. I mean, you can, you can buy, sell, get this, get that. I mean, so quickly, right? Did you know the Bible describes our, our spiritual lives as a race, a race of endurance? It's not something that just happens overnight, right? There, there has to be endurance in all of that. And so we need to keep that in perspective. Spiritually blind do not see this. They are selfish with their money. They've lost sight of eternity. Third, lastly, you make it more about the outward rather than the inward. Notice what it says here. They say, we've been walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. Right? What profit is it right, of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord they had all the forms of their religion, but it was just a show. That's all it was. Less than 100 years after returning from exile and just 25 years after a national confession of sin before Ezra and this public hearing of the law, right? The people repented. They, they put on the sackcloth. They put on the ashes. They did the whole thing, right? And they say, well, we're going to follow God. We're going to do this. But then what happens uh, you have just this surface-level concern to just keep up appearances. That's all it was. In other words, they had gone from focusing on the heart to now just focusing on the externals. That's it. It's always easier to keep up external forms than to put the effort into real heart change. The Jews had been doing all the externals. They'd worn the right clothes. They appeared to grieve over sins. They equated religious forms with righteousness before God. And you know what? We do the exact same thing today. The exact same thing. But it just looks different. We're outraged at the way our country has slipped into debauchery. And we mourn over the sin in our culture with the murder of babies in the womb, the LGBTQ movement, the BLM movement, communistic culture, the false information and propaganda. Did I miss anything? We mourn over that, and we're just like, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. God, aren't you going to do something about this? And yet we do not mourn over the hypocrisy in our own heart and our lives before God. You see how we just become forms of all this and not really looking inwardly? That's exactly what the people of Malachi were doing. They're walking around mourning before God. Oh, God, oh, God. Oh. And yet they're not even spiritually aware of their own apathy before God. 
It's so important that we heed what, what God says here to return back to him. We sometimes think that external forms are what makes us righteous before God. We pretend to grieve over our sins. We might cry. We might feel guilt. We pretend that we spend time with God. You might be able to quote scripture. Maybe you can tell me what you even read in the Bible. But we're just pretending. It's not real. It's just an outward form. It's not real. We show up and we sing and we listen and we go home again without any concern to apply what we have heard from the truthfulness of God's word and we just go on with life as if everything is normal. That's what was happening here in Malachi's day. There's no real genuine belief. Real belief isn't evidenced by your attendance or by feeling guilty. Real belief is evidenced by showing repentance to the Lord in how we actually live. A repentant heart. Lord, search me. Search my heart. Search me. Try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me into the way of everlasting. And so it's important that we do this. And this, this might not be you, but Here's the amazing thing. God desires the blind to see, verses 6 and 7. And so if you've been apathetic and your eyes have been open, God is calling you to repentance. He's calling you to return back to him. Return back to me. And so God is asking through his word, will you put away your arrogance and repent? Will you, as what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him so he can direct your paths. And so if Malachi has been describing your life today, how long will you hide your sin? How long will you pretend ignorance to all this? How's your relationship with God? Oh, it's fine. It's great. It's wonderful. We have to do spiritual inspection in our own hearts, in our own lives. And God will offer us hope if we simply return back to him. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.